0: Strike Force Energy, veteran-owned, American-made, and one of the hottest new energy products on the market. Strike Force Energy was developed by veterans for one simple reason. The fight will always follow you, and it waits for no one. Buck Sexton here for Strike Force, and I invite you this summer to join us in giving back to America's troops. Over the last three years, Strike Force Energy has shipped millions of packets to our troops, both at home and abroad, and now we're bringing this battlefield-proven liquid directly to your door. Strikeforce Energy Liquid Packs, available in four flavors, have zero sugar, zero calories, and are made with only the finest ingredients. For the fuel to power through your toughest fights, simply add Strikeforce to 16 to 20 ounces of water, tea, lemonade, yogurt, even an ice cold beer. Go to StrikeforceEnergy.com, enter discount code BUCK at checkout, and for every packet you buy, we will donate a packet to military members around the globe. StrikeforceEnergy.com, discount code BUCK, because Strikeforce Energy is... The fuel for the fight.
1: You are entering the Freedom Hut.
0: The Russia collusion delusion continues on. We have the uh, Manafort trial now getting a lot of attention from the left. We will break down what's real and what's not. Also, the results are in from uh, some elections in Ohio and elsewhere. We'll talk about how the left spun this. And uh, then we'll have a few guests joining, including David French of National Review and Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and author. A pack show coming up.
1: This This is the Buck Sexton Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small
0: thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American again.
1: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate.
2: Former CIA analyst. Former
1: member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now.
0: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Great to have you with me much to discuss uh let's let's get right to the uh, president's legal team has apparently uh, turned down the request from Mueller for a sit-down interview um jay Sekulow, one of the president's lawyers spoke about this one play clip five please
2: our position is that there is not a constitutional basis to move an interview forward and what i mean by that is the article two power of the presidency is very clear and the idea that you would have a series of questions involving the President's motives uh, for particular actions as it relates to Article 2 power would frankly be inappropriate in our view, unconstitutional. So then you ask yourself, does that answer the question? Well, look, the President has stated that he wants to do an interview. I will tell you the position of the legal team is that we do not advise that. However... There continues to be ongoing discussions and dialogue with the office of special counsel to see if there is something that can be worked out that we would be comfortable with. Short of that, the answer, of course, is no. But if ultimately, the one that makes that determination, though, the lawyers can advise, is the president of the United States.
0: That's right. If Trump decides to sit down, nobody can stop him. I think it would be very unwise for him to do so. And I also think that We've learned some things about the uh, liberal opposition over the last couple of years. We've learned that in the era of Trump, the hashtag resistance does not respond to good faith with good faith. The hashtag resistance will always find a way to use any olive branch extended from the other side as a weapon against the one who extends that branch. Uh, And Trump trying to perhaps uh, come to some kind of an agreement here with the special counsel is is sure only to be used against him, uh, used against him if it is possible for them to do so. This whole thing is nuts, folks. I mean, let's let's just call it what it is. You got Mueller at this point producing no evidence of any kind that Trump had anything to do with this Russian interference from the very beginning The Russian interference was really just an attempt to mess us up and force us to keep our eye off of what really matters. Democrats have played into that like a fiddle. You know, you never hear people talk about that way, but it's true. Democrats are the ones who are like, oh, our elections are unsafe now. I don't know what's
2: going to happen. How do we keep this going? Oh,
0: And trust me, mark my words. If they don't take back the House, you're going to hear some, there's going to be some stories, but oh, maybe the Russian election meddling was even more sophisticated this time. Or maybe you guys have bad ideas. You know, maybe your focus, uh, your your maniacal focus, the Democrats, on illegal immigration, uh, transgender bathroom rights, and, you know social justice or something it, you know maybe that's not what the american people really want to hear especially when the country is doing so well think about where we are right now and the arguments that you're hearing from the left they say what trump is bad trump is mean vote for us why how will democrats make your life better oh no, don't worry about that let's just hear more bad trump jokes I was it was uh, unfortunate, but I, I caught a clip of the Stephen Colbert show last night uh, that, you know, whatever he replaced Letterman. Right. Who's also an unfunny jerk, by the way. Unfunny. People say, oh, Buck, no, I, he was funny 20 years ago. Yeah, it's just because there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of choices 20 years ago. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a construct the same way that teenagers can be uh, expected to like a, a a, a boy band or one of these teeny bop bands or whatever they put together. It's all very plastic, all very fake. Some of these big media personalities from the past, they just had the platform, folks. They just didn't have any competition. And so this was what you were offered up. Go back and watch some old episodes. I'm going to get yelled at for this. Not like old as in 10 or 15 years ago. You go watch some of the earlier days of SNL. It doesn't hold up. It's not funny. And you could say it was innovative for the time. but All right, I'm getting off track here. Colbert last night. It's just all Trump jokes. These are jokes that stupid people laugh at and think they're smart for laughing at them. It's just one Trump joke after another. And 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 very snide, easy, childish uh digs at the president, digs at his character, and of course, painting all Republicans as racist at every possible opportunity. We're all we're all just so racist. You know, I kind of wish that there would just be more opportunities for us to sit down and tell liberals. You know, you liberals like Stephen Colbert, you know, these, these white, these smug white liberals, you guys pretend to care so much about minorities verbally. What do you really do for minorities? Yeah. You know, they, you, you see this with Colbert, with uh, Bill Maher, with, you know, n- name any prominent political commentator who also sometimes is a comedian, because that's really what they are. They're really just political commentators who don't have to deal with, Defending their arguments. They just get to play offense all the time because, ha ha ha, clown knows on, I'm just a comedian. No one ever really gets to sit down with them and say, hold on a second. Well, why do you get to make all the jokes about how everybody else is racist? What are you doing for oppressed minorities other than, oh, well, I vote Democrat? Oh, okay. It's a very cheap virtue they get, isn't it? Very easy. They don't take any responsibility for the Democrat policies that have ruined cities across the country. They don't take any responsibility for the so-called Great Society programs that have created government dependency, broken the family, and put people in misery for generations. No, they don't take any responsibility for any of that. Instead, they make Trump jokes. They make fun of Trump. That's what they do. That's what you see happening all the time. And, and uh, you know, th- this presidency, unfortunately has had to deal with the most concerted and maniacal political hit job in in my lifetime, to be sure. Nothing else comes close to this. You know, they hated Bush, but at least there were enough people around Bush that they had to show some deference and respect to that there was a little bit of a break on the lunacy. Now it's just... The, the inmates are, are running the asylum and burning it down at the same time. They absolutely hate this president, doing everything they can to stop him from being president. And the Mueller probe and all this, all this cat-and-mouse stuff with, will he sit for an interview or not? Will he sit down for an interview? This is not about defending the nation. It's not about the sanctity of our democracy. Just a lot of sanctimonious people that say that stuff, but... Mueller should not, uh, should not get this interview with Trump. Um, it, he has not proven a need for it, and there's nothing to be gained from it. Jay Sackalow with more here. Play clip four.
2: There's been no evidence put forward on any type of collusion uh, between the president and and Russians. I I mean, no one's put evidence forward on that. Now, that's number one. Number two, uh, let me tell you this, when people say the word obstruction, I I want everybody to understand the context in which this is arising. This is arising in decisions that a president makes under his authority, under Article 2, who's going to work for him, who's not going to work for him, where things are developed, where they're not, what policy positions they take, what policy positions they do not. The idea that that would constitute some kind of violation of the law, to me, seems uh, not only a bizarre legal theory uh, and untested, but frankly out of order under our Constitution.
0: Yep, I think he's. I think his analysis on this is absolutely correct. Um, I think it's it's correct. And by the way, one more here from from Rudy saying that you know what, it's also time to to to, uh, to stop this thing. Dragging it out has been a a goal of the Mueller probe from the very beginning. The process is the punishment. This is what they've been trying to do. This is what they've been trying to accomplish from the get-go to make this go on for as long as possible. And Rudy knows that. He used to be a prosecutor for decades, folks. He understands how this game goes. And he's trying to put the the pressure out there. You know, Mueller is not thought of well in the public. People realize this is a political hit job. And it is. It has been all along. Rudy's saying, wrap it up. Play 10.
3: We do not want to run into the November elections. So you back up from that. This should be over with by September 1st. We have now given him an answer. He, obviously, he should take a few days to consider it. But we should get this resolved. If there's going to be an interview, let's have it. If there's not going to be an interview,
0: then let him write his report. Let him write his report. By the way, that won't stop the Democrats from saying that Trump should be impeached anyway because you know they just hate him so much. They'll have they'll have some rationalization for how even even absent any official accusation of wrongdoing from this Mueller probe, there's still some reason why Trump shouldn't be the president. But that's uh that's the circumstance we're in. For influence. what a giant a giant waste of. The uh, American people's time. This whole thing has been. I mean, I talk about it here because we have to play defense, right? We have to actually counter the lies. Uh, we have to try to hold those, uh, hold the people accountable in the media who have been running with this story uncritically, actually cheerleading for this story all along. What a mess! What an utter mess! And people don't even realize that in you know, the last week uh, we've had Iran sanctions back in place. You got more sanctions probably coming up against Russia. Uh, because of the uh, the poisoning in the UK, I mean, you know, you got all these things going on that might be of interest to folks, and also might affect people either abroad or here at home. And instead, we have to hear more and more about Mueller, Stormy Daniels, and uh, and Avenatti. That's what it is. Oh, and Cohen, who I don't know if I mentioned this. Oh no, they might get Cohen on on tax evasion. You know why I, I'm very. Dismissive of all this crap, and I can talk to you a little more about the Mueller probe. I like this Judge Ellis; he's slapping around some of the smug prosecutors from the federal government, which is great. Teach teach them a little bit of manners. Uh, but he said one of them was crying. Did you see that? He's like, "Are you crying?" This was in the court transcripts. One of the federal prosecutors. It's like, dude, you're not going to prison for the next thirty years. I don't think you should be crying. The guys are the ones that are uh, crucifying Manafort over here to try to try to placate the social justice warrior left with oh well look we got Manafort now Uh, but they're going to get Cohen on tax evasion I sit here I'm like you know the problem folks is that if they really wanted to if you're a person with you know substantial earnings and lots of different different accounts and and business transactions you know they probably could get you on something I'm not saying they can get you on 15 million dollars of completely untaxed income which is what they're saying Manafort did but they could probably get you This whole Mueller probe is turning into a glorified IRS audit of Trump's inner circle. That's what this is, and that's what it was going to be all along. It's coming straight out of the Bill Clinton book. You are an enemy of Bill Clinton's. All of a sudden, the IRS came knocking on your door. Hey, I just want to inspect you and take a look at your financial files. You know, there's a lot of that stuff going on. 844-900-2825. If you want to chat, my friends, 844-900-BUCK. We have much more. Stay with me.
4: I don't think that it's possible that he'll indict him. Uh, Mueller is uh, under the uh, control of Justice Department guidance that has been in existence since the Watergate era. A sitting president will not be indicted. So uh, the question is, will Mueller push this to the point of subpoenaing Uh, president trump for testimony or will it be just a situation where like many cases uh, somebody refuses to cooperate with the prosecutor and you make your assessment uh, based on the information you have
0: there's andy who was andy mccarthy federal prosecutor as you know for over 20 years and frequent guest on this show also fox news contributor see him on fox all the time you know this is it's all going to amount to a big hill of nothing Big uh, a big nothing burger with wasabi mayo aioli. How about that? Yeah, get a little little hipster stuff going on in there. By the way, producer Mike, do do you have do you have a strong preference? I think he's answering phones right now, so he's not even paying attention to me. Uh, there, there's a very important question to ask you, sir. No, yeah, okay. He he's he's waving me off for the phone lines. I see how that is. Well, Brandon, if you want to weigh in, you can. I'm. I was just gonna say that. As much as I know as an American I'm supposed to have ketchup with my French fries, I do prefer mayo, and we can call it aioli if we want to be fancy, but that's basically just fancy mayo with some some herbs. It's bougie, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's better, though. I, mean, I know, you guys can boo me. Mustard, I'm actually a little more excited about than ketchup. Ketchup, I find, is really the, uh, ketchup is like the soy milk of condiments. It just You just don't need it. You just don't need it. Uh, so Mueller's probe is going nowhere. That much is pretty clear. I do want to talk to you a bit about the the, the uh, latest information that we have on Fusion GPS and Bruce Orr and all that stuff going on. Uh, I've, I've, got some, I've got some new information, but also some theories about what we are going to find there uh, and theories that are also informed by some of the uh, breaking news reporting of one of my colleagues here at the Hill. Uh, so we'll discuss that and also what happened in Ohio. I don't know. I always don't want to play into this game of, oh, there was an election somewhere in the country. Let's make this a referendum on the thing that we want to make it a referendum on. You know, it's usually more complicated than that. That's why I had Selena Zito, who was in Ohio's 12th last night, call us from there and talk to us about what's going on. But I mean, it's a little fun to play the narrative, uh, the narrative association game. Right. Well, the Democrat. right. First of all, right now, it's not even clear who won i think there's a recount going on so you gotta factor that into all of your analysis but but beyond that so much of the political analysis you'll get about the various elections right now is pushed by what somebody wants the messaging to be so it's like well you know i really i really think that republicans are going to do great because you you fill in the blank there but what you're trying to say is you just think the republicans are going to do great what one is really saying is this is analysis, but it's also just wishful thinking and I, I don't think that that's usually the way you want to go if you're trying to get insights into a situation but but that's that's me, but we will talk about the situation in Ohio uh a bit and and hear from some of the Democrats on that one uh, but the whole Bruce orr situation that'll be coming up next year, so you will remember Bruce Orr was this uh fellow who was number four at the Department of Justice. So a very, very senior government lawyer. Which always we always need to remember, Comey was a lawyer. Bruce Orr is a lawyer. These are not, you know, guys that were that just got back from walking the walking the fence line in Jalalabad or something, right? I mean these are these are these are desk jockeys. These are government bureaucrats. Uh, and but Bruce Orr there's no information about him and i think there's more that's going to be coming out in the next couple of days. He was the guy who was really pushing along the whole dossier narrative, that whole storyline. He was the one that was that was in the early stages of it getting it into the government's bloodstream such that it could then be weaponized by the intelligence community against Trump. And we have more information on him that makes me think that uh he he deserves a lot more scrutiny and also people need to ask him some much tougher questions about why he made the decisions that he did when he did. Uh, so we will get to that. If I have time, I might also talk to you about the, uh, some follow-up on the, uh, the wildfires, which are still raging out of control in California. I know a lot of you appreciated that I spent some time on that yesterday just because I, I think that uh, you can't, you can't count on the left to say that the environment has any issues other than climate change. And the uh, the government is certainly not trying to provide us with information, the government of California, state government, about why they're so incompetent. So we might get to that, too. So lots and lots of things coming up.
1: He's holding the line for America.
2: Buck Sexton is back. President Trump has made an about face of that much discussed meeting between his son Don Jr. and a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower back in June 2016. The president now admitting it was all about getting information on Hillary Clinton. He is now bluntly acknowledging that a Trump Tower meeting central to the investigation was in fact about getting dirt on
4: Hillary Clinton from the Russians.
0: High crimes, misdemeanors, treason. Uh, that he went to the Russians and sought their help and their compromise about Hillary Clinton and you know
2: where all of a sudden now, the president is confirming bluntly what it was all about. He says there was no no violation of the law, but he, he's admitting finally what it was all about. I think we've actually entered now a very different realm because uh, we're no longer speculating. Now we actually have people essentially admitting what, what the happened. President. The people, yeah, the people being in this case the president the of the United me? States in
3: word on Twitter admitting what happened.
0: This is pretty much a replay of news stories that they were running when this initially broke what was it uh back in was it back in may forget when i gosh i forget when it was now a long time ago i guess because it's august i I gotta cut the media a little slack that they're just gonna run with the usual oh my gosh trump tower i was on fox once and some loudmouth clown just started yelling over the trump tower meeting i'm like trump tower meeting was nothing all right You jerk. No one's getting charged for anything. No one did anything. Just stop with this. People are such imbeciles. But there is some other stuff that's going on surrounding this whole notion of the the Russia fantasy, the Russia collusion, delusion. And you may have seen some of this. In fact, uh, my colleague here at The Hill, John Solomon, broke a story today at TheHill.com on this, where when you look closely at some of these players... The timelines are going to be a problem for them. When you look at how the FBI and the Department of Justice and whomever else was involved with the dossier and some of these sources that they were running, uh, they've told us that it was all based on Papadopoulos, which I would note is on on its own completely ridiculous. A guy says something in a bar about essentially repeating a, a conspiracy that was Share it all over the internet and then you open a huge full, full field FBI investigation on, under counterintelligence auspices into him. that's ridiculous that is utterly ridiculous but that is what they did and, and we know that now and they, they pretend like that's not some kind of problem on its own and then I you know how I feel about the whole Carter Page fiasco anybody who tells you that Carter Page is a, is a real counterintelligence threat is either a liar or a moron. But they used him, right? They, Pfizer, multiple Pfizer warrants on him, the whole thing. And you have to ask yourself, why is it that there was a Pfizer warrant on Carter Page but there wasn't a Pfizer warrant on the Chinese spy who was Dianne Feinstein's personal driver for 20 years? Feinstein being the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence has access to the most sensitive stuff in the United States government, and you know, not not really a lot of, not a lot of attention on that issue, not a lot of time spent on that issue. And as I've been telling you, China is actually a much bigger national security and espionage threat than Russia is. Right? You only started hearing about Russia when Hillary lost the election, folks. There's a reason for that. You know this. I know this. But there's a few things here. One is let's look at this Bruce Orr character for a moment. Bruce Orr was number four at the Department of Justice, and from what we have now, there was a lot of correspondence, direct correspondence, between Orr and Christopher Steele. Now, I've got to tell you folks, someone at that level, at one of the, I think DOJ has 100,000 employees, something like that. I mean, DOJ is a vast organization. You were going to tell me that somebody at, at the very upper echelon of the Department of Justice, should have been in frequent personal contact with a, what we're told is one of many sources, oh yes, those very robust sources they had, for the Carter Page FISA warrant. Right? Christopher Steele was one of them. He's the guy who wrote the dossier, as you know. And Christopher Steele and Bruce Orr are very, very chummy. They are buddies and they start talking it seems v- quite early in this investigation frequently afterwards and then even after Steele is terminated as a source because he went to the press while he's supposed to be feeding the fbi information or still wanted him involved what you see with these actions my friends is that bruce Orr, why wi- uh who's i was gonna say wife of husband of Nellie orr who was a Fusion GPS employee, Bruce, I think it's safe to say, got convinced by the missus, probably at home, you know, eating some meatloaf or whatever, that Trump, because of the information she had picked up from Christopher Steele, who was doing work for Fusion GPS, that Trump was a, an urgent threat to the nation, that he's working with these Russians, that there's this PP tape with the prostitutes and all this other stuff. And or went on, dare I say, a personal jihad within the Department of Justice to try and find a way to get this story not just investigated, but to get it acted upon such that it could stop a Trump presidency. Very much reminds me of the the power mad prosecutor up in Wisconsin during the John Doe investigations of Governor Scott Walker. Where when you really dug down into it, you found out that the main prosecutor who was just abusing his office, a complete disgrace, his wife was like a big uh, teacher's union rep and hated Scott Walker. Oh, what a shock that is to find out, right? You also look at, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm actually blanking on the guys, The number, the number, oh, McCabe, there we go, number two at the FBI, you know, his wife, a Democrat, I'm sure she hated Trump. Some of these, uh, some, some Lady Macbeth-like situations playing out here where some, uh, some of the, the wives of some very powerful government officials were perhaps influencing their decision-making and using their authorities as senior government officials to keep the missus happy. Nellie Orr and Bruce Orr, these are, these are not things you can write off as a coincidence, she got Bruce all all wired up on this thing, and he was not going to let it go. You also have to remember that for people that work at the Department of Justice who are zealots, who are partisans, which is what Orr and McCabe and Comey's a Comeyist, I know I've said that before, that's really true, but you know these, these bureaucrat careerists who really believe that the system is, stands apart and in some ways athwart The rest of government, these people will take any opportunity to advance themselves. And what better way to advance themselves into the absolute top echelon of government power than to be helpful in either stopping or vanquishing a Trump presidency? Uh, You know, there's no way to ingratiate yourself into the warm embrace of the status left and and Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama and their massive, not just uh, political machines, but really their, their patronage machines. I mean, they, they open up doors to movie deals and board, uh, board seats on companies and all kinds of great stuff. All kinds of great goodies of Hillary and Barack and others like you. And if you've taken one for that team. Bruce Orr, McCabe. They maybe saw themselves even having a next act, a next level in government, if only they were able to pull this off on behalf of the Democrats. I do not believe that they were acting in an impartial fashion. I think all the evidence doesn't make it just obvious, but you really have to be obtuse at this point to ignore that there was, there was so much bias and and that Bruce Orr was so close with Christopher Steele shows that there was this was not about the facts this was personal for him he was personally motivated to use Christopher Steele in the dossier to get Trump alright that's part one part two of this Devin Nunes my old buddy I had a chat with Devin recently some of you may have seen it on hill.tv slash rising Devin and I were having a discussion about what's really going on here with all of this stuff and Carter Page and the FISA app there's all this redaction in it still. I believe that those redactions are not done for national security purposes, but because there's a lot of CYA going on in the FBI, in the DOJ. Devin uh, also wants to point out that the contrary evidence to the dossier should have been, I'm on a first name basically, I'm Devin, Congressman Nunes, it uh, feels like the judge should have been given the full picture before signing off on a warrant that effectively is an end run on the Fourth Amendment. Because it is, folks. We need to understand that. It's a counterintelligence warrant. It's under national security, uh, uh, national security powers that don't go through normal uh, procedure for a U.S. citizen. And, and really, it's kind of like, yeah, the Fourth Amendment, man, eh, I'm not so into it. We got, we got more important things to do. That's what it is. We should understand that. And, and it, it has been ripe for political abuse for a long time. We've seen that it is. But Nunes wanted to make this point about how they were stacking the deck, even based on what we know with the Carter Page FISA app. Play two.
2: There is exculpatory evidence that we have that we have seen of classified documents that need to be declassified. The Carter Page FISA, when those the judges should have been presented with this exculpatory evidence that the FBI and DOJ had. Yep. Yep.
0: They did not make a a full disclosure because it was not an honest process. Uh, This is prosecutorial misconduct, in a sense, or or I guess investigatory misconduct in this case. But this is the executive branch of the federal government weighing in on one side of a political debate in a way that it, it, it is the biggest political scandal of my lifetime. No question about it. And here's one thing that makes me pretty frustrated, folks. They're not going to get Trump with this. They're not going to have this moment of vindication. Oh, Hillary really won. That's not going to happen. But you know what also is not going to happen? The people that were responsible for this, the individuals in the government who pushed these lies, including Comey, and their underhanded shenanigans, including Comey's release of the memo to the New York Times and all the things that have gone on, they will not be held accountable either. And that is a tragedy. It really is. Um, But I just want to prepare you for that. Don't think that the only exception to this may be McCabe, but I think they're going to give him a pass too, Uh, even though he almost certainly lied under oath. I mean, they say more than once. General Flynn doesn't get that special treatment because Trump. But McCabe, you know, his wife was close to the college, a Democrat in good standing. They're going to make the problem go away for McCabe. Probably, probably eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred. Buck. I do want to talk to you about what happened in Ohio. Don't know why I just said it that way. That was kind of weird. I'm in mean, kind of a weird mood today, but uh, I'll talk to you about uh, the election there and some other stuff. We've got much, much more to discuss, including our fantastic guests who'll be joining us in the third hour: Brandon Webb and David French. Webb and French sounds does that sound does that sound like a good buddy cop? Pairing, web and French. I don't know, maybe. Or it could be like a a hipster Brooklyn barbecue place. We'll be right back.
1: He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never
2: stops. Uh, you have come on here and, like Donald Trump, reduce everything to narcissistic self preoccupation and articulation you're using big of words your here Let me to finish. Say nothing. Narcissistic. What you're saying I mean, here? You right so now, now what I happens to Black America? Happens to you. So Black people before. are reduced I'm to what? About can Trump. you, Ari, uh, Can or you, are uh, you you I finish my point? I didn't jump on her. Can I finish my point? Can I finish my point? We're out of time. We had we put aside eight minutes
0: there you go cable news for you everybody that was on the uh, uh Ari Ari show on uh, MSNBC that was Candace Owens and Michael Eric Dyson who I, I know you couldn't really catch it, but he does this thing where he goes on TV and says a bunch of things that kind of rhyme and they're long words. And they maybe make sense until you think about it. That, that's that is complete blather. And I give Candace credit for not sitting there. He said something like narcissistic. Uh, I can't hear you know. You're narcissistic, self referential, something or other, which is really you know. First of all, it's repetitive. But that guy does that a lot. And I was just kind of happy that somebody finally called him out on it. And you get all these people go, ooh, he he threw a bunch of big words into this. And it's and, and there's a kind of cadence to it. You know, there's a whole bunch of I could probably do a, I, I pull a bunch of these that would illustrate this point very well. I can't really do it off the top of my head. I was thinking about trying to do it uh, a, an impression of the kind of verbiage that Michael Eric Dyson goes for there. But isn't it amazing that Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk travel around the country now and, and do these? Well, wherever they are in the country, they're they're doing these media hits and they were attacked by an Antifa mob, and they're the bad guys, according to the left. I I don't know, man. It's, you know, at some point, they keep saying that the problem with Trump supporters is that you can't agree on, that they won't even agree on facts. And then we see stuff like this, and isn't this not agreeing on facts? Isn't this also evidence of some kind of real psychological disorder that is a a combination of a mass hysteria, and it's... Of course, Trump derangement syndrome, no question about that. Uh, but when people are being attacked because they try to have breakfast in Philadelphia, you would think that maybe the media would show them a little bit more deference uh, and say, hey, that's, that's really crappy that that happened to you. I hope people don't do that. But instead, they get, they get talked over. But that was a classic, though, right? They just—I What you couldn't hear there was that uh, Candace had to sit there while Eric Dyson spoke uninterrupted. It was the, the usual MSNBC ambush against a conservative. You go first, it seems like they're being polite, but you go first and the anchor interrupts you right away. Right, The anchor is going to interrupt you very quickly and start pushing you and try to throw you off balance and show the audience that they don't like your argument. And then the whole weight of the segment is handed over to the liberal. This is They did this at CNN all the time. I've dealt with this. It's a classic CNN ambush. The Clown Show News Network ambush. And, and they, they, so they let you go first, the anchor interrupts you Passes the ball to the Democrat, and the idea is the Democrat just takes it as far downfield as possible. Oh no, no, don't interrupt. I let you go first. I let you go first. Let that Democrat just just a a, a barrage of idiotic talking points. But, you know, and, and they'll take some little personal digs at you and, and you want to get in. Oh no, 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 let that person go. And she had just suffered through that and didn't want to have round two of it, so she started throwing that. and then they just will talk over you and go and do break. Which is what they see this is why you can't have Cable news, this is why we can't have nice things, you know? That's why. Ohio, the election. Important things, they say. That's coming up. Strike Force Energy, folks, is what you need to fuel your fight, okay? When you've had a long day, if you're getting ready to go to the gym or you're just putting in a long one at the office, need a little boost at home, taking care of the kids, doing a bunch of chores, whatever you've got going on, Strike Force Energy gives you that extra edge. It's available in four flavors, has zero sugar, zero calories, made with only the best ingredients. It was developed by veterans for one simple reason. The fight will always follow you and waits for no one. Look, I think that when you add Strikeforce to 16 to 20 ounces of water, tea, any, any drink you want, really, you see its taste, you know that it's giving you that little extra boost, you're going to realize that this is something you want to keep in your toolkit, in your personal arsenal. Go to StrikeForceEnergy.com, enter discount code B-U-C-K at checkout. That's StrikeForceEnergy.com, discount code BUCK. And for every packet you buy, they will donate a packet to military members around the globe. StrikeForceEnergy.com, discount code BUCK. Buck Sexton.
1: Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information
0: with actionable intelligence. Russian. One small thing. Make no mistake. America, Great. great American again.
1: This is the Buck Sexton Show.
2: Former CIA analyst.
1: Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton.
2: Now the Democrats weren't really targeting this race. The special election popped up when the sitting member decided to leave early to take a job. And the Republican Party has spent over $3 million just on this single race.
0: They sent in the president at the last minute. So when you, when you think about it, this is a district uh, as, as Garrett noted, hasn't been in Democratic Party hands since Ronald Reagan was president. And if it took all of this to essentially get to a tie in
2: a district that the president carried by double digits, they can't Do that in 435 districts at the same time in November. Democrats, I think, are now heavy favorites to take control of the House. I think the question is really the size. Is it 30 seats, 40 seats, 50 seats? They have a night like this, like they did in Ohio. They could win 40 to 60 seats.
5: The visit on Saturday is why we won. Listen, we saw what was happening in the AB early vote. We knew through our data that we needed to get our electorate engaged and energized. That's why President Trump went in on Saturday before Election Day into Delaware County, where we won, which was the key county. Our data and our targeting the RNCs on the ground, we made a million voter contacts, but we knew what was happening. We know that most of these absentee ballots outstanding right now are Republican ballots. So we feel very good about this victory.
0: Who won in Ohio? Welcome back to the Bucks Saxon Show. Depends on who you ask, apparently. You have uh, Balderson, who got a little bit of Trump love in the last minute, which was certainly helpful. Uh, Balderson has declared victory. But if we're going to be technical about it, there are still a bunch of uh, votes that need to be counted. And there's an automatic recount going on because it was Very close. Uh, Troy Balderson got one hundred one thousand five hundred seventy four votes and Danny O'Connor got ninety nine thousand eight hundred and twenty. So the Republican has a little bit of a a lead over the Democrat, but there are thirty four hundred and change provisional uh, ballots that have yet to be counted. So there's an automatic recount. And on top of that, folks, this is a, a congressional seat that has to be up again come November. So whoever wins is going to face off against the other person again in November. So it's like you get to be congressman for 90 days. Wait, not even 60 days. It's like, you know, you know king for a day. You get to be congressman for a month or two. That's uh, not so awesome. You get to be an incumbent who everyone says, but are you really an incumbent? I mean, really? Come on. Now you get also all of the narrative spinning that goes on as a result of this. Is this a referendum on Trump? Depends who you ask. Is this just another local election decided by folks in that district? Well, depends who you ask. One thing that I do think really affects the way this is reported on, though, and the way that people talk about this is they want to create a perception of momentum going into the election. And that's why you had Chuck Todd there. Um, who, right, he, he's always, He's just a journalist. I mean, we all know he's a Democrat. But he's just a journalist. Hmm. It's so, so interesting how that works out. Saying that they might pick up 40 to 60 seats. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a wipeout. You know, maybe Democrats shouldn't get their hopes quite so high, given what happened the last time they thought that they were shoo for a big election day bonanza. It is, to this day, I got to tell you, it is one of my regrets, as someone who covers politics, that I was a... 15-minute walk from the Hillary election party that turned into a Hillary election wake. I was and I just it just didn't cross my to this day. I wish I know producer Mike is shaking his head at me. Dude, I I I would have gone over there and just wanted to just to soak it all in. You know, just they they were They had the fireworks display they were going to call on. They're going to be popping champagne. Oh, we're going to be in charge, the whole thing. And and as I've said before, I remember the next day, I had a in my building, the superintendent of the building I lived in was a very—he wasn't just a Trump supporter. He was one of these chain-smoking New York guys who, like, has seen everything and, you know, nothing surprises him. He was a Trump supporter early on in the primary. He was like, I'm telling you he's going to win. I'm telling you he's going to win. He kept saying it to me, smoking cigarettes outside my building. I was like, really? You really think he's gonna he's like, he's like, dude, dude. That's what he always said to me, dude, he's gonna win. I saw him that next day and he looked at me. He's like, what are they gonna pay me millions to do all that political mumbo jumbo on TV? I was like, you know what, dude? You, you might you might be onto something there, my friend. You might be on to something. But other than him, everyone that I saw, it was like a it was like a massive political funeral or something on the streets of new york city everyone was just oh. uh, you know it never really felt like a native son of new york city had just won the election i mean hillary is a total uh, uh you know a, t- a total transplant hillary's connections to new york she just goes where the money is that's right uh she just went where she could raise the most funds for her campaign and and where she would have the most access to power and influential people she's not a new yorker First of all, she went to Chappaqua. They didn't get me started. All right, some fancy, ritzy suburb. Uh, anyway, Hillary, uh, the election, all that stuff. The last time around, that they were so sure, that's what happened. And now this time around, they're starting to get their hopes up again. And I'm just saying, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear all the all the whining. I don't want to be swimming in giant ponds of liberal tears the day after election day. Uh, if, in fact, they don't get what they want here, and then to be told about how it's Russia and all this other stuff. This was one congressional seat. It looks like the republic I mean, the Republican, I think, is still likely to win, and it's one congressional seat. There's a lot of them. Let me tell you, I live in D.C., and I always, I'm always amazed that I, I meet people like, well, I work for congressman so-and-so, and I'm like, you know, unless your congressman's on a list of, like, I want to say 100, but more like 50 no one knows who that person is. Don't give me that whole like, "Oh, I work for Congressman so and so." Yeah, whatever. I'm not. I'm not impressed. Buck is not impressed. A lot of congressmen coming and going. This guy, who was the uh, incumbent in Ohio, just decided to bail early. He's like, "Yeah, I got a private sector opportunity. See you later." Didn't uh, Chaffetz do that too? Wasn't Chaffetz like, "Yeah, I just want to be a pundit. I'm done." I think did, he, but he finishes. I think he finishes term. I can't remember now. But he was like, I'm done with politics. Time to do Fox. You know what? If my if my choice was to be a pundit on Fox or to be a member of Congress, it is, it is not even a question. So I got to say, I think he made the right move. Uh, but this whole race is going to be something that we forget about in a couple of days. It's just that it's August and people want to have something political to sink their teeth into who are on TV to try to convince you that – Oh, this anti-Trump wave is coming. The anti-Trump wave is coming. Just wait for it. Wait for it. Get ready. Get ready. Get her. If anyone catches that reference, I will be very impressed, by the way. I mean, it's it's a bit vague. It's like what some of you do to me with the action movie quotes. It's not an action movie. I'll give you that one. Where you call in, you're like, hey, stop where you are. What movie, Buck? Like, come on. Can't be that. It can't give me the quote of, like, would you like wine with dinner? I mean, that doesn't count. It's got to be an iconic quote. Oh, speaking of iconic things, the, my favorite part of the Ohio uh, election, really, mm-hmm. I don't think this got nearly enough nearly enough attention. Joe Manchick was a spoiler here. Do you see this, producer Mike? Joe Manchick uh, was the Green Party candidate, and according to the interwebs here, what I'm seeing on the Daily Mail Joe Manchik is a native of Hell, Michigan, which I didn't know was even a place. By the way, who would name their town Hell? You know, it's like naming your kid Adolf. That's not cool. i don't want to do that. Hell, Michigan says his ancestors came from a distant planet. I'm quoting this, folks. And couldn't remember his own website address during an interview this year. He claims that marijuana is the solution to, the, to opioid addiction. Also claims he speaks 19 languages including spanglish and sheet music. Can you prove he doesn't speak sheet music? I pose that one to you. Uh he calls Israel's war uh sorry, Israel's prime minister a war criminal, says every American should be required to grow hemp. And there are still thousands of absentee ballots to count, but by the way, uh this guy got 1100 votes. 1100 which which just goes to my brilliant political analysis, that if you have a crazy enough candidate, people will vote for that person just to say they voted for that crazy candidate. If you had somebody running for office who only did campaign appearances dressed as Thor from the Avengers, I promise you that person would get, you know, some votes. It would not be zero. It would not be zero. If you go all in on crazy... You can get some votes. And in a case like this where you have a razor thin margin in Ohio, the Green Party candidate who thinks he came from a faraway planet and can't remember his own campaign website may have been the different, uh, the difference maker here. Think about that. What a crazy world we live in. But then again, if you don't have Ross Perot, you never have Bill Clinton and we didn't go through the 90s that way. What do you got? producer? Oh, is someone calling you or are you waving to me? I'm waving you because I actually have a question about man. Oh, I got. Oh, let's go for what yeah. you
4: got. Um, how long before do you think somebody in the Democrat Party says that he's a uh, a Russian plant uh, and that's why they lost
0: the this election in Ohio because of Russia? That's brilliant, dude. Yeah. If they find if they find this guy retweeting one story from like RT or something, yeah. it'll be a national news story. If in fact he is the difference maker,
4: I wouldn't be surprised. If tomorrow, at some point, we see.
0: This is Russia's fault. Has he has he been to Russia? I ask you, Mike. Does, has he ever had Smirnov? Who does he root for in the hunt for Red October? These are the questions we need to ask about this guy. These are the things we need to know. And I don't know if I don't know if anybody's really been doing the hard the hard work on this one, the hard research. So yeah, Ohio. That's the, you know you, you get the, the the two sides of it. Republicans won, but they didn't win by that much, and it's not official yet. So clearly, the Democrats are going to crush them in the midterms. This is called trying to get base turnout up by getting enthusiasm up. That's what you're seeing a lot of pundits do. And other than that, it's a lot of blah, blah. You know, it's like these guys who do the sports commentary before the big game. Whichever team has more points on the board will, in fact, be the winner. Thanks, Phil Sims. Thanks. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be back with much more. I'm a former intelligence officer, so I, I can tell you that you need people you can trust when it comes to information. Uh, you need to know that the person who's passing you sensitive information is somebody who is working toward the same purpose you are. Global Verification Network is a dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company that I'm telling you, you can absolutely trust, and they will get you answers about background checks, about tenant screening, vetting and investigative services in a faster and more efficient manner than anybody else out there. Also, Global Verification Network only uses people that are here in the States. They do not offshore or outsource this work, and all of the information you give them is stored on U.S.-based servers. So support this veteran-owned business that will work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. Go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. Mike, we got a call line from Phyllis. Where's Phyllis calling to us from? Uh, Trona, California. Trona, California. Phyllis from Cali. What's up, Phyllis? <laughs> Nothing so much. How you doing? I think I know what the um,
4: what your movie line is.
0: Oh, look at this. Okay.
4: <laughs> is it Bill Murray's character from Ghostbusters? Dr. Yes. Smith, when they
0: in the New York public, phone? look at that in the New York Public Library when they sneak up on the. Whatever, the poltergeist or whatever that thing is, the ghost.
3: Yes. <laughs> Get her.
0: That's a great scene, by the way. And the music, the whole thing. I'm mean, Ghostbusters really stands the test of time. It's one of my ten favorite movies of all time, I'll be honest with
3: yes, you. Yes, me too.
0: Yeah, great, great film. Funny, I actually Hi. played. It, thank you. Hey, Shields High. I like it. Thank you. I like the enthusiasm. You know, back in the day, randomly, I actually played tennis with Rick Moranis a few times, Producer Mike. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right? Who would know? it's just city courts they're kind of local courts in the, one of the neighborhoods there and uh, yeah he's a nice guy nice guy like many comedians though when you're used to seeing somebody like oh like i'm just a comedian like doing their thing and then you talk to them he's like a he's a very shrewd very very quick-witted you know serious individual like he's not he's not like hey i'm just goofy guy like that's all uh uh no nah. he's he he moves well too on the court he's a pretty good tennis player you you move pretty good i saw you on the dance floor Who knows what that movie's from? Yeah, you guys think you you guys think you got game? Let's see what you got. King Kong got nothing on me. Um, All right, let's talk about Pelosi for a moment here. Here's what she said about illegals. Play clip 15, please. We
2: want to shorten the distance, as your question indicated, between what we think is inevitable for America, they think is uh, inconceivable believe that we can get this done. We are not going to be able to get it done under the Republican uh, leadership in Congress. We believe that we will have leverage when we win in November. And why that's important? Because it gives leverage to every family, to every mom who courageously brought her child across the desert to to escape death, rape, Gang violence and the rest, because of the leverage it gives to families who, who may a father, dad may have gone home for a family funeral and now can't come back into the country.
0: What Nancy's really saying is that it gives leverage to illegal immigrants, folks. That's what she's saying. But vote Democrat because Democrats in office gives more power. To illegal immigrants, that is what the woman who will probably be the next Speaker of the House if the Democrats take it, that's what she's telling people. That's what she's saying with, with cameras there. Can you imagine what she says behind closed doors? You know, I had a chance to speak to uh, the acting Director of Border Patrol, and we had we had quite a discussion. And I asked her, this was on my TV show, I asked her, I said, well, people say that a wall won't work. What do you think? And she didn't miss a beat. I mean, she didn't even stop to think about this. She goes, no, a wall will work. This is the, the acting head of Border Patrol, folks, has worked under four different presidents. She's been in this for like 20 some odd years. And she said straight up, that a wall will work, a wall will help. A wall is not a, is not a cure-all. It doesn't stop all legal immigration. But a, and when you think of how many people you've heard running around saying that a wall is nonsense, a wall is, is so stupid, it's garbage, there's no reason for it, we shouldn't pay for it, and they always give this justification of, well, it, it won't do anything. And that just defies all common sense. Of course it will do something. Harder to get. A, there's a reason people have fences around their homes in areas. Right. It's harder to get over walls. It's harder to get over a barrier. But what she was saying to me was also this isn't something where we have to guess. This isn't a hey, you know, let's extrapolate out. Let's do some let's do some, uh, you know, back of the napkin calculations here and figure this. out. No, no. Where they have a wall, there are fewer crossings where they have a wall. Border Patrol is less stretched is less uh, burdened by trying to cover its sector. So a, a wall definitely helps. And yet people are lying to you all the time and saying that, you know, a wall doesn't do anything, doesn't mean anything. No. Do not buy into this crap. Do not buy into the nonsense. I, I've, the more I talk to real professionals who have been dealing with border issues at a, at a senior level, the more I see, one, a lot of what the media is telling you is fake news, a lie. Uh, this this notion, for example, that I mean, I asked, I asked her also straight up. I said, did were there families apprehended at the border who were separated during the Obama administration? Because people say, well, it happened. No, it didn't happen. Well, I asked her. She said it absolutely happened this is the acting head of the Border Patrol folks and a career Border Patrol agent said it absolutely happened. But it did not happen to the same numbers because you did not have families arriving at the border, in the same numbers. Why were families arriving at the border illegally, I would add, crossing illegally in the United States? This is the other thing people say, oh, they're not illegal, they're asylum seekers. Wrong! That is a lie. That is not true. They cross, it's illegal for me as a U.S. citizen to just walk across the border. You have to go through a port of entry. So these people that are showing up, these family units, are breaking the law, and then they were being separated. But that was only happening in the numbers that it was because... Obama's administration basically kicked the door wide open for anyone to show up with a family and claim asylum. If you could walk to our southern border, you could request asylum. And by the way, it's not hard to figure out a script that's going to make an immigration judge think long and hard about granting that asylum. So I just was getting some answers today. But when asked, would a wall work, her answer was an unequivocal, unhesitating yes.
1: holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
3: Well, I totally agree with it, and I'm very grateful for it. I'm here as chair of a group called United Against Nuclear Iran, Bipartisan group um, focused really on trying to convince businesses as Congress, including led by people like me and Republicans and Democrats, adopted sanctions, economic pressure on Iran. UANI, United Against Nuclear Iran, put pressure on businesses to stay out of Iran, saying it was risky business and it was wrong to deal with this extremist
4: regime. He wants to get Iran to stop the behavior uh, that is so destructive. He wants them to quit being the largest state sponsor of terrorism. He wants them to quit killing their own people. He's not looking for a short-term win here. He wants the the regime, he wants to break their back if that's what it takes to get them to change.
0: So Iran is back in the news because the uh, sanctions went into effect earlier this week. You, You also have... Uh, some real unrest in the streets there that hasn't really gotten much attention. And look, I, I know there have been many times since the 1979 Islamic Revolution that people have said, oh, Iran is teetering, it's on the brink. That's the phrase they'll use, on the brink, teetering. Um, teetering is kind of, I feel like teetering is a weird word. Like you say it, it's one of those words, you know when you say a word and you're like, that's kind of a, something about that word. Anyway, uh, so the, you know, Iran is, is in some rough shape right now economically because of the sanctions, we're going to be in rough shape uh, shortly, and and I think that the the president's approach on this one, look, it's going to be slow. That's this is the the truth of sanctions is that it takes a long time, and you have to uh, you have to pick the right time to try and and use them to get a, a new deal, right? It can't just be oh, There's sanctions, and maybe the the molos will come to the table right away. I doubt it, though. They'll have to feel some of the pain and the pressure of these sanctions. Um, but one thing that I keep running over my head and I read this uh, There's actually a piece of the New York Times It was about Afghanistan and, and wars that that are not ending is you know we are at a point right now where I feel like the uh, the country is doing very well and, and I remember times when things were much were felt much more bleak and much more uncertain much more dangerous And I I do feel like while they've been saying all along that Trump is he's a loose cannon and his tweets are going to start a nuclear war, I don't think that we're going to have a uh, another war under this president. I really don't. I I think Trump is going to avoid it. I think he's going to avoid uh, getting dragged into something that's just a, a bad, bad scene for U.S. troops, for U.S. power and and. Wouldn't that just wouldn't it be nice to have eight years of maybe I'm, I'm no, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, folks. I know a man can dream, but eight years of a president who doesn't back down to our enemies, but also doesn't get pulled into things because of uh, what the latest you know, humanitarian rights group that wants a U.S. Remember, the Democrats always want to intervene based on some kind of humanitarian notion with our military. So it's okay if we kill a bunch of foreigners that haven't attacked us or done anything to us as long as it's for some vague humanitarian justification. Uh, if it's for U.S. national security interests, then then Democrats tend to have a much bigger problem with that. Um, I'm seeing people that are getting all snide about how Trump wants a war with Iran. I, I don't believe that at all. I just think Trump is refusing to allow the Iran problem to get left for the uh, next administration to handle. That that's That's how I see it. Look, you know, I I could be wrong. Uh only only time will tell if if I'm uh, if I'm right on this one. But I also would like to see if, if I can put this out there. I I would like to see Trump wind down even more our 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 commitments in a, in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly in Afghanistan. It's just not I don't I don't know what the mission really is anymore there. And I talked to people that have come back from there recently. I talked to people who have been involved at very high levels of uh, US uh military operations there and they're all like, Yeah, you know, we're just kinda treading water. Treading water with whatever it is, seven thousand plus troops in Afghanistan. You know, it it, it is possible to live in a uh, to live in an America where we, we don't have to get pulled into any wars and where the economy is just taken off like a rocket ship and everything will be you know e- e- everything will be trending in the right direction. I just have a hard time dealing with the the juxtaposition of what's re- what it really feels like is going on in America right now, where we're just prosperous and, and effectively at peace. We don't have mass casualty terror attacks happening every month. We don't have people telling us that we don't have race riots. That was happening recently. Um, and and I, don't, I also think we don't have a president who, for uh, ideological reasons... Is going to decide that it's time to topple a regime somewhere. He'll pressure Iran, sure, and he'll try to bring him to the negotiating table and get a better deal. But I do not think this president has any interest, nor does he have the uh, the stomach for a, a war with Iran. Which I'm seeing some people say, "Oh, Trump, Trump, he's a he's a war No, not this guy. I don't I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it at all. So the Iran issue also, I I think is. Much more fascinating in general to the uh, the political and media class than to most Americans because unless we are going to go to war with Iran, all right, we got sanctions and you know we got people that are handling this, but I don't want I don't want to belabor it. The best thing that could happen is the Iranian people overthrow the milocracy. That would be fantastic. You know, count me in for spring break Iran 2020. But until that happens, we got to be patient. We got to wait and see. But I I think Trump is moving the right direction on this one. I really do. Uh, we've got our guests coming up in, the, in, uh, in a little bit, uh, Brandon Webb and David French will talk to us about some news of the day. Brandon will talk about his new book. So, uh, team, stay right there.
5: That upper middle class doesn't exist anymore in America. And thanks to the continued deregulation of Wall Street, thanks to the continued um, gutting of working and middle class people, um, we need stronger champions. But I don't think that they see exactly how rising income inequality has resulted in a very stark political reality and it has changed our political landscape but you know their heyday was in the 90s when like you know kids had like furbies and like parents you had like soccer moms with like two <laughs> vans and stuff like furbies and
0: two vans yeah <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's, dream
5: <laughs> that's not america anymore
0: <laughs> so uh, that's ocasio cortez the future of the democratic party there folks and and I think it's it's become quite clear to anybody who listens to her that Ocasio Cortez speaks in a a kind of left wing uh, progressive pose, or a left wing jargon that is that is a, a bunch of words that stupid people think sound intelligent. That's what it is. It's it's just a lot of you know, yes, and class and inequality and the you know, the way she speaks. She's heard this. She's picked this up over time, and she spews this without really thinking very much about what this would mean in practice. I just talk more about inequality and and the political dimensions and the different class struggle aspects of you know, it's just a lot of a lot of garbage. And uh, I I gotta say that. It gets worse and worse with more interviews. She was on with the uh, with the podcast bros there, um, whatever their name is, the ones that used to work for Obama. And this notion of the upper middle class doesn't exist anymore in America. It's just not true. Uh, So, you know, this is this reminds me also that, you know, when you say things that really matter to people that aren't true, like the upper middle class does not exist in America anymore. Uh, It's kind of a nonsense statement. Those same people who will cheer on Ocasio-Cortez for saying something so dumb, well, then Trump say, "Well, Trump lied about what he had for breakfast." Right, but that doesn't matter. Ocasio-Cortez pretending that Americans are much worse off now economically than they were in the '90s uh, is is inaccurate. Um, and and I was I was alive during the '90s. I remember, um, and and I knew about soccer moms and minivans and all that stuff, but. You know, we we have much greater uh, productivity, and also what we are able to get with the money we have in many ways—not in all ways, right? Yes, I know. Education is way more expensive. That's the problem with the universities, folks. That's the, their universities are making out like bandits here on the backs of the taxpayer. So something no one ever talks about. The taxpayers backstop all this borrowing, and the universities keep raising their costs all the time. Healthcare, same thing. A lot of regulations. A lot of everybody's going to pay for everybody, or everyone's going to have somebody else pay for them. And nobody wants to pay for somebody else. Well, guess what? That doesn't work. You're, you're just shifting around the deck chairs on the financial Titanic with health care. But they like to talk about that kind of stuff. And then uh, and then you, you get more of this Ocasio-Cortez. And remember what I said. She she speaks in a leftist jargon. That is what stupid people think sounds smart. And she's gotten good at that. But the underlying substance is incredibly flimsy. You know, she would come in last place at a moderately advanced high school united nation model un debate you know uh, th- there's not much going on here with the policies that she with her ability to discuss policies it's much more just a function of she says the things that she thinks the left wants to hear and they are much more interested because of their identity politics obsession with who the person is saying the words than the words the person is saying. So, uh, with that in mind, I would offer to you that you should check out or, or listen to clip nine. Play it
5: you know, they say, how are you going to pay for it? As though they haven't used these same ways to pay for unlimited wars, to pay for trillion dollar tax cuts and tax cut extensions. They use these mechanisms to pay for these things all the time. They only want to know, it just seems like their pockets are only empty when we're talking about education and investing in human capital in the United States, education, healthcare, housing, um, and investing in the middle class. All of a sudden, you know, there's nothing left. All of a sudden, the wealthy nation in the world has we're just totally scarce and we have complete scarcity when it comes to the things that are most important and so uh, for me I think it belies a lack of moral priority
0: again more more blather more this she thinks it sounds good coming out but it's really not good at all you know she's like she's like a kid who has gotten access to the parents' piano and starts playing notes really fast and thinks that they're ready for the concert hall, and in fact, it's just terrible. A uh, few things she said there, I just wanted to note. Remember, this is, this is somebody who, uh, first of all, she endorsed a bunch of candidates who have all lost in the Tuesday uh, primary that just happened. Um, and then... Beyond that, uh, we're, we're hearing more from her and understanding why I don't think the Democrats are wise to bank their political futures on the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democrat Party. She says things there like investing, like we don't invest in the middle class and, and human capital paying for tax cuts. Taxes are money that the government is taking from you. It's forcibly taking from you, I might add. Paying for taxes, you getting to keep more of your money in leftist jargon world is costing the government money. Well, the only way that works is if you philosophically believe that that money was the government's to begin with and not yours to begin with. Essentially, whatever money you have is whatever the government allows you to keep. And not whatever money that the government takes from you is based upon representative government that should limit to the greatest extent possible its necessary expenditures and only be involved in that which is constitutionally aligned for it to do it's certainly not how leftists view it though and also she threw i know she has an economics degree she likes to talk about scarcity that's when the scarcity kicks in no we spend a ton of money On all kinds of social programs. We have a trillion dollar welfare state in this country, my friends. We are spending vast sums on education for public schools that in many places, in many cases, are failing miserably. Uh, We have spent all kinds of money on. You know, this is where this is where the, the rubber meets the road, folks. This is where the facts should matter. Education spending has been going in one direction the last 40 years up more 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 money spent all the time you know what's happened to uh, test scores pretty much stayed the same you know what's happened to the achievement gap between whites and non-asian minorities during that period of vast increases in spending no change really so why why stand up and make these speeches that are just ignoring reality i mean she she is somebody who seems to be immune to facts it's like when i hear people say well aren't you for common sense gun control i say well there's a lot of gun control already in place there are federal laws about guns there are state and local laws about guns there's a lot of laws about guns invent we don't invest in the middle class what does that even mean how are we supposed to invest in the middle class well universal health care you know, we're going to get Barr from South Carolina back on the line here. And tell us what it's like to get your teeth drilled without any Novocaine, because, you know, everybody gets their teeth drilled for free, though. So you got that. We have we have now have a, a, a century or so of evidence that capitalism is the best system ever devised by human beings for ordering an economy and for powering a political uh Powering a political union, a polity, right? That that you capitalism is the best way because it takes into account a universal truth, which is human nature and self-interest. We are at root self-interested creatures. Doesn't mean we are selfish, but we are self-interested. Capitalism harnesses that for productive purposes. The Ocasio Cortezes of the world would much prefer you have government stooges sitting around deciding what you can do what you can keep what you are worth and what you can spend and I just think that all we have to do is look at human history and see that that always leads to disaster it's just a question of when uh, but she is she's a, a deeply unimpressive person on on facts and on policy uh, and I will say It really does remind me that, you know who else is really unimpressive on this stuff? It's just all slogans. It's all bumper stickers. Bernie Sanders. You know, I I give him a pass sometimes because he's from New York, and I kind of like his funny accent and stuff, but what he talks about is complete nonsense, overwhelmingly. I mean, it's just a lot of nonsense, and it's just all, you know, I want to help working people. It's the most populist pablum you can imagine, and they're peddling this stuff at a time when the country's actually doing very very well and i just wonder you know if they think this is the message now just imagine what the message will be if we do have some kind of an economic downturn if we do have let's say a recession during trump's hopefully eight years in office we got a big hour three coming up folks we're gonna be talking to david french about a big first amendment battle that involves the nra and also our friend brandon webb former navy seal has got a new book out on mastering fear we'll discuss that and more coming up
2: Forget the extremists. It's simple. No one hunts with an assault rifle. No one needs 10 bullets to kill a deer. Only people who are very bad at
0: shooting, perhaps. That is Cuomo. You remember him because he is very uh, very opposed to the Second Amendment in general. He's the governor of New York. He has pretensions, I think, of national level office don't don't ever forget that one Uh, and he is very active in trying to show democrats and and his base that uh, he does not like guns and gun owners well he's taken some steps recently i want to discuss with you we've actually brought on an expert to help us address it our friend david french is with us now he is of course a, a writer at national review you can read his latest there to limit the second amendment new york attacks the first it is an excellent piece david great to have you back
4: thanks so much for having me i
0: appreciate it so please set the stage here what what has cuomo done because it's a little there's a little bit of complexity to to set up how he's he is in fact using the uh or to get to the second amendment he's he's attacking the first but what's he doing
4: yeah it, it you know it's and i think one of the reasons why i haven't got more attention is because it takes a little time to set up <laughs> um But essentially what he's done is he's issued public statements and urged his uh, Department of Financial Services, which regulates banks and insurers in New York, uh, to issue guidance to banks and insurance companies, regulated entities in New York, admonishing them to consider the reputational risk and the risk management aspects of continuing to do business with the NRA. At the same time, it's brought uh, some enforcement actions against insurance companies that have done business with the NRA, entered into consent agreements with these insurance companies that have barred, it, uh, barred those insurance companies from engaging in a range of lawful business activities with the NRA. So essentially what is happening is he is using his regulatory power and he's using the regulatory power of the state to punish and to pressure corporations that do business with the NRA in an effort to try to financially damage the NRA. And that is a re- that presents a real First Amendment problem. It presents a problem. It's, a, it's essentially engaging in reprisals. Uh, against private entities for their constitutionally protected speech
0: and this is where i feel like david usually in these discussions we have to always separate out well there's the, the the principles of free speech and then there's actually the first amendment of the constitution that protects you from government action this is one of those moments where this falls under the latter category this isn't just hey everybody we should allow more speech and we shouldn't try to silence each other in deep platform this is you can't be a powerful government official and say, I don't like that thing you're doing, so I'm going to use my office to hurt you. That is what the governor of New York is doing.
4: Yeah, exactly. That is exactly right. And so, in, and to make it, to make it uh, clear, I'll just very quickly uh, quote the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which governs in this instance. It says, uh, permissible expressions of personal opinion, speaking about uh, there's a there is a difference between permissible expressions of personal opinion, like when Cuomo says, you know, we should ban assault weapons, which is his opinion as governor, and he can express that, uh, are different between are different from quote implied threats to employ coercive state power to stifle protected speech, and so. So there is a legal doctrine that protects you not just from express threats by state officials, but implied threats. And I don't know what's a, more, what's a stronger implied threat than offering regulatory guidance to financial institutions, warning them away from doing business with the NRA. And that that is a real problem. It seems
0: to me like this keeps happening in New York, where it's either the governor or the state attorney general's office. They like to use the power of the law, the executive branch, or use their, their prosecutorial authority to go after issues that will get them national level attention. And, and, and David, you know, I, I wonder, where are the where are the defenders of civil liberties that we used to hear about so much? Where are people that are supposed <laughs> to be devoting their lives to the First Amendment? I mean, Cuomo, this is like a textbook. You can't do this if the First Amendment has meaning thing. And I'm not seeing much conversation about this.
4: Right. And and that's one of the things I tweeted out. This story should have more legs. But, you know, we're reaching a point where uh, free speech for me, but not for thee, is sort of a, a principle of our polarized times. And we're reaching a point where uh, the, before someone starts to defend speech, they're, they're going to ask, who is the speaker? And if they don't like the speaker, they're not going to defend their speech. And that's a real problem. And nobody, And I, I would say the organization the left hates more than any other organization is NRA. So a lot of them are just laughing at the impact that this has on the NRA. And I set up a scenario in my piece that they wouldn't be laughing if this was the governor of Texas going, about, going after every town for gun safety. Uh, then they would see the, the free speech emergency at stake. Then they would see the abuse of state power. Uh, but right now, they're just chortling and laughing at the possibility that the NRA could face financial problems.
0: I do feel like there's been a cultural shift, David, within the Within the progressive left, you, you know, you have these groups like the ACLU that really did. And and I know people would yell at me and say, no, Buck, they they've always had a a certain ideological bent. But that that, that let's just concede that for a moment. They did take on cases that wouldn't fall within a a leftist. Uh, grab bag of things that they would want because there was a principle they're willing to defend. I think that the notion of free speech, you know, whether it's the Berkeley campus speech movement, the ACLU willing to defend the Nazis marching in Skokie, that the left has largely abandoned that. I mean, I, that, that's just what I'm. that's what I'm seeing these days. And, and you're hearing a lot of people talk about about hate speech, David. And they're saying, well, hate speech isn't protected speech. I keep hearing this said all the time. Well, that's one. I, I hope everyone realizes untrue, and two, kind of a terrifying new reality that a lot of Americans on the left are
4: embracing. Yes, and, and you're right. There, there is a sort of. I actually got a call from a, a delightful uh, liberal lawyer in New York um, just earlier today who read one of my pieces, and he said, "I'm an old school liberal. I protect free speech," and. It's a little depressing that he had to say old school because I knew exactly what he meant. I, and I've had a lot of friends in sort of the old school ACLU that have stood side by side with me defending free speech. And and now we're seeing the ACLU backpedal from that. Uh, we're seeing the ACLU change its priorities on speech. And I had problems with the ACLU's other forms of, of uh, you know legal action, per- particularly its establishment clause perspective and its perspective on abortion. But on free speech it had been solid for a long time. It is very distressing, very distressing to see this climb down. And it's not just a cultural climb down on speech. It's a legal climb down. And I, I wonder how long liberal judges and liberal justices have been pretty good on speech in the last, you know, generation or so. I wonder how long they'll stay good on speech. When the younger side of the progressive movement is not quite as dedicated to free speech principles. I
0: mean, I'm just this is just my my opinion. But, David, I I think that if you were to uh, if you were to present somebody uh, like a uh, I I think if you presented Justice Sotomayor, for example, with uh, our racial epithets, protected speech, I think she would say no.
4: (laughs) You know, I, I wonder about her. I, uh, I I think of her as the Huffington Post judge. Um, it feels like whatever HuffPo wants, Justice Sotomayor is going to give it to him. Uh, I have deep concerns about her. I have uh, similar but not as deep concerns about Ginsburg. Fortunately, I think on most Core free speech issues. at seven to two in the Supreme Court on core free speech issues. Uh, unless abortion's in the mix, then it's five four. But on a lot of core free speech, we're as, sitting at seven two. We should be glad about that. Uh, but you know, these these majorities are fragile, and most free speech cases are not decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. They're decided by lower courts. Which right now, you know, many of these lower courts seem to be um, more interested in joining the, you know, hashtag resistance than upholding traditional principles of constitutional law.
0: I have been seeing a number of cases, and to your point about lower courts handling some of these issues, where there will be arrests made uh, for somebody essentially for for some kind of a a hate crime but the crime can be generally more of a verbal and and menacing right i mean in the NYPD, they call it menacing if, if you seem like you were maybe about to hurt somebody they could say you were menacing um and, you know whereas assault would be actual physical contact I, I i feel like we are skirting the line david where now hurtful words are getting closer and closer to being illegal in the eyes of the left depending on who the victim is
4: yeah yeah, I'm. I'm. I have some concerns about that as well because hate. Cri- there's not supposed to be a hate crime that is grounded only and solely in the hateful content of the expression. Normally, what you're talking about is uh, a hate crime would be if somebody commits an underlying crime like right. vandalism, it's, which is it's a crime like an no enhance- It's what. like
0: an enhancement to the crime.
4: It's an enhancement, exactly. But if the hatefulness is seen to be the crime itself, that runs afoul of Supreme Court precedent. But I do think a lot of police departments are pressing on the edge of that.
0: Yeah, and, and I, would, I would just ask you, if somebody said to you, and I'm, I don't know how much uh, campus, speech, uh, campus speech giving you give these days, um, but if somebody came up to you and said, well, Mr. French, hate speech is not protected by free speech, could you look them right in the eye and say, you're wrong? Because it feels like these days they should be wrong, but I'm not sure they're wrong.
4: Well, they are wrong if you test it. But I think one of the problems is you will see state power intervene uh, and suppress free speech. And then either the person doesn't have the resources or the will to contest what the state has done and they acquiesce. And so, you know, the the jurisprudence is still very strong. So if you have good legal representation, if you have the will to fight, you're going to win. But, you know, the state can accomplish an awful lot just by um, exerting its power and sort of daring yeah, you just, to do anything.
0: Just the decision it. to arrest is is a, an exertion of, a, or a, a the, the state exerting itself in a way that can uh, make a big difference to people. Uh, David, we have to leave it there for today, but everyone should go check out David's piece on NashReview.com to limit the Second Amendment. Uh, Second Amendment. New York attacks the first. Uh, subheading added by Buck here. Cuomo is a blustery bully. Thank you so much, David, <laughs> for joining us. I appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right, we'll be uh, back in just a moment with a, a, a really frightening case out of New Mexico and a terror training camp for kids. Stay with me. We haven't heard as much recently about radical Islam and the threat of terror. I think that you have to assume that that is in part due to the Trump administration and its actions abroad and also its approach to these issues at home. I know that liberals would contest that and say, oh, no, but... It's a lot quieter on the terrorism front right now than it's been in quite some time. But that doesn't mean that the threat has gone away. There's a stunning report out of New Mexico where you have an individual with quite a terrorist pedigree. I mean, law, his, his family, and I'll get to the specifics of it in a moment, could be considered jihadist, well you know, jihadist royalty, in a sense, in this country, right? I mean, they they are the terror, uh, the terror A-team. Uh, they're at the top of the terror game. I'll, well, now that I've been talking about it, uh, the individual involved your last name Wahaj, uh, was the son of a, well, the, the father was a Brooklyn imam named Siraj Wahaj, who was named by federal prosecutors as an unindicted co-conspirator, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. This instance, though, the son here, Siraj Ibn Wahaj, Ibn means son of in Arabic, by the way. If you ever see IBN, it just means son of, uh, was involved in a, a terror training camp, running, I think, from what we can tell here, a terror, a terror training camp with other individuals, with children who were being taught, and we don't have too much in the way of details right now, but children who were being taught to become school shooters. Now, the reporting here is still early, but this uh, makeshift compound in New Mexico is pretty close to the Colorado border, uh, had a a kind of uh, slapdash fence thrown together of old tires and debris set up around it. You had adults here who were uh, heavily armed, you know, uh, long guns, sidearms, all that kind of stuff. And you had a few women who were arrested as well, uh, who were also arrested on, on child abuse charges. But I got to tell you, this is uh, this is new. I, I haven't seen this before, meaning uh, one, we know the terrorists will attack children because they've done it in the past, uh, They've done it in some very high-profile mass casualty terror attacks, including the the Beslan school massacre, which is a hard thing to read about and and learn about because of just how brutal and 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 heartless and vicious that jihadist terror attack was. But we, I have not seen, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I have not seen on U.S. soil to date an effort to specifically train children to become school shooters. So here it's not just that someone would train as a terrorist, but they would be essentially a child who was a sleeper cell to become a school shooter uh, because of the jihad. This is new. I've I've never seen this before. I mean, I I might be missing a case, but uh, this one is the first of its kind that that I have seen. And obviously this is going to get uh, passed by very quickly by the uh, national news media because this is not a a bad guy that they want to focus their time on. This is not someone who they're going to do wall-to-wall coverage on. But think about what this could have been. You could have had this uh, Siraj Wahaj, 39 years old, if he had been successful, might have been able to uh, implant these 11 children who are living in Horrific squalor and terrible conditions. Uh, but these 11 children could have been used to infiltrate schools. I'm not sure if we have the ages of the children yet. Uh, oh, no, we have a range. That's right. Ages 1 to 15. But, you know, you could train a 13, 14, 15-year-old to go into a school and be a school shooter. So we, we don't have much more in the way of details about this, um, but we, we do know that, one, we've got a major child abuse case at a minimum. Uh two, that the the three year old uh or rather that that Wahaj was the father of a missing three year old. And so they were they were looking for him and they believe that the three year old's body may have already been found on the uh on the training ground here, this terrorist training ground. And then you look at this guy Siraj's background as I started talking about at the very beginning. He was the son of a Brooklyn imam, this is from Fox News, named Siraj Wahaj, named by prosecutors as an unindicted co conspirator uh, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, but also uh, the older Wahaj heads Majjid Taqwa and was a character witness in the trial for Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the notorious blind Sheikh, who our friend Andy McCarthy, by the way, locked up, you know, helped lock up forever. He took care of all those bad guys. Who was convicted in 1995 of plotting terror attacks in the U.S. So, you know, th- this guy is, is from a, a family of terrorists. And he looked like he was trying to train the next generation of terrorists. But in this case, kids that could have been used to shoot up schools all in the name of jihad. So the, the threat of jihad remains very real, my friends. It has not gone away, even on our own soil. Uh, We must maintain a degree of vigilance and and understand that there will be, and you can mark my words on this, there will be another uh, outbreak of virulent jihadism somewhere around the world that results in a U.S. military response. And in the meantime, if we let our guard down, it it could even be here at home. You know, it could be a major attack here at home. So I'll I'll keep following this story, but it did did, uh, catch my attention. We've got... uh, Our friend Brandon Webb joining to talk about mastering fear in just a moment. All right, Team Buck, a special treat here on this lovely Wednesday. We are joined by our friend Brandon Webb. He is a New York Times bestselling author and former Navy SEAL. His latest, which is just out this week, Mastering Fear, a Navy SEAL's Guide. Brandon, buddy, good to talk to you. What's up?
3: Always good to be on the show, Buck
0: so uh so here we we have another web opus here this one sure to also rocket up the bestseller list tell me what's going on how, how does one use uh navy SEALs uh training and philosophy to master fear
3: so uh you know the book was inspired by teaching a mutual friend of ours how to swim who was kamal kamal was 44 years old i realized By teaching him uh, how to swim, that he had this. It was less about teaching him how to swim, more about helping him overcome and confront his fear of water. So over a week, I mean, I had him at the bottom of the ten foot pool in the New York Athletic Club meditating, like cross-legged. And after the week was finished, he said, "This changed my life." You got to write a book about it. So that was the inspiration behind the book. And what I what I think people have this. Uh, they have this vision of a SEAL being fearless. And it's like, no, 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 everybody deals with fear. We all deal with it. It never goes away. It's, it's how we choose to deal with it and confront fear that that separates uh, the people that can get over it and push through bad relationships, bad career decisions. Um, and so I just put it in a system uh, and shared my own personal experiences with fear, going back to leaving home at 16 when my my dad kicked me out. Um, off our sailboat, our family boat in Tahiti, um, you know, to dealing with stuff when I was on com- combat deployment with SEAL Team Three. So uh, that, and also sharing stories from friends um, that have been on my podcast, uh, "Power of Thought," like astronaut Scott Kelly, who who candidly admitted that he was afraid to apply for NASA because he didn't think he was good enough, and so. Um, you know, this book is about sharing real stories and real experiences from people that, successful people that have dealt with and confronted their fears. Um, and I just put it into a system and uh, really incorporated a lot of the mental management, um, the positive psychology, mental management that I put into the sniper program before I got out. So um, it's probably the best, the book I'm most proud of because I think it's going to help a lot of people.
0: Was there one moment when you were with uh, SEAL Team 3 that sticks out in your mind as, in, in that moment, the single most fearful you ever felt?
3: Uh, probably the time. Uh, it's it's funny. A lot of the, uh, what I would say, near-death experiences I had on the deployment to Afghanistan after 9-11, the training really does kick in in these situations. I would actually get, I would feel fear after the fact and go, wow, I just. I was just in this contact where we had to drop, you know, danger close, almost on our own position to, to get rid of the enemy um, in in the caves that were close to overrunning us. So stuff like that. And then after the fact, I would feel this kind of rush of fear. But in that situation, it's, I, I think the training kicks in. Um, but, but I feel it today, you know, I've been an entrepreneur longer than I have been a seal now. And, you know, business stuff happens. Uh, recently Facebook, uh, we have a gear club, the crate club. We advertise on Facebook, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. They shut down our whole ad campaign like 50 ads because they labeled us for selling guns, which we don't do. They just, they saw our website as scary and with veterans and guns on there. And we lost probably $200,000 in revenue in four days. And I, you talk about being scared and like losing sleep like i'm going to have to let people go <laughs> but i had to remind myself to to use my own system and um and that's the point of the book like we all deal with this every day and it's how we like i with mastering fear i just give people a system to to deal with fear sometimes it's baby steps but hopefully it'll help a lot of people confront some fear that's maybe holding them back uh, from from relationship
0: career you name it when you feel that that moment and everybody i think knows i'm talking about where you have that that visceral that that physical reaction of being scared right uh whether it's you know a car almost hit you when you stepped off the curb or in your case you know a bunch of guys are lobbing mortars at you and trying to hit you with an ak but you know when you feel that what's the first thing you should think well
3: you know, I see it, and I do some public speaking, as you've done as well, and I'm pretty sure all of us have that same nervousness right before we get up on stage in front of a live audience. And you have to just realize that that fear and nervousness, um, it can be harnessed and used. And, and nobody nobody breaks a world record in practice. It's that, it's when when... Things are on the line. It's high stakes. You're in the pressure of, of a, a situation, um, and you realize that you can use it to your advantage. You can harness this kind of fear and energy and use it and use it to your advantage, and, and I, I lay out the system step by step.
0: All right, everybody, you should check out the book. It is Mastering Fear, A Navy SEAL's Guide. The author is Brandon Webb, my good friend. Brandon, best of luck with the book, and come down and visit me and Molly in D.C. soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Buck. All right, brother. Take care. Team, roll call coming up.
1: Team Buck, it's time for roll call.
0: Well, team, we have much to get to today. It's that uh, part of August that always creeps up where... You're like, you know what? Granted, there's not a lot in the way of news stories out there, but at least we get to chat and talk about whatever we want. I like that part of it. And I get to hear from all of you and spend more time on your thoughts, concerns, constructive criticisms, all that good stuff. First up here, we have uh, Adam writes, as much as prosecutors are an interest of yours, you'd be interested in what happened yesterday in St. Louis County, Missouri. A Ferguson activist defeated a 27-year incumbent in the Democrat primary for St. Louis County prosecutor. You know, that, that is interesting, and I can't say that I've looked into that case. I don't know anything about that election specifically, but I will take a look. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, just based on what I read here, that it's a situation where the prosecutor, who did not bring charges against the officer who shot uh, Mike Brown... Uh, that prosecutor was punished by the people because he made the right decision as a matter of law, but politically, it was not a popular one. But this, this perhaps is a good opportunity to remind everybody that prosecutors should never be doing what is political, what is popular. They should do what the law demands and what justice, uh, justice demands. So that's what I think uh, of that without looking into the specifics of it. Brian, remember this is at Facebook.com slash Buck doing a great job, guys. Love the hinky reference from The Fugitive. Had the sergeant not used it, Deputy Gerard would never have taken the stairs up to see the uh, doctor coming down. That great Chicago chase scene on St. Patty's Day never would have taken place from Brian. Brian, I really liked the movie The Fugitive growing up. Saw it many times. Saw it in the theaters with my family. I... I haven't seen it in a while. So there's a part of me that would wonder how well does this really hold up? Hmm. So, yeah, Uh, I bet. I bet pretty well. Harrison Ford, I I get into this argument with people and some of you can weigh in on this right now on, on Facebook if you want. The greatest American action hero of all time. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Not action hero. That's Schwarzenegger. We already had that discussion, but the greatest leading male actor in american cinema of all time is you get some very interesting i would say if you're looking at hollywood blockbusters it's a it's really a toss up between tom cruise harrison ford does brad pitt get in there too i don't know i might be going off the rails here a little bit but i mean i think harrison ford in the 80s and the 90s is probably the greatest american Uh, blockbuster actor the only guy who comes close really is tom cruise i I do think that uh will smith and denzel are also in the conversation uh but that's just my opinion man amy writes uh hey buck on the topic of rising we in the freedom hut expect you to crush your enemies see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women name that quote well amy I'm so sorry to disappoint that I don't crush my enemies. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to on Rising. I have to, be, I have to be gentle. It's like Rising is like I've been invited to a dinner party and I have to be nice to everybody. I, can't, I cannot uh, own the libs. Not allowed to own the libs on Rising. I can own the libs here, and I do, and in the rest of my life for the most part. Uh, and as to the quote you reference, it is from Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Hear the lamentations of their women. It's a great, it's a great quote. Darby. Darby's up. He writes, "Uh, listen to the podcast from yesterday, Buck. Fantastic show as always. So good to hear from Bart from South Carolina and appreciated his firsthand knowledge. He made some excellent points. Yeah, I know. We miss Bart, man. We haven't heard from Bart in a while. I actually met Bart some years ago at a speech in Charleston, South Carolina. I gave for a veterans group and uh, he he was there. I, I met a few members of the team there. It was really fun. Anyway, Darby writes, the no anesthesia dentist is quite enough for me to absolutely reject socialism as well. The vast amount of information I've learned from listening to your show and from all members of the Freedom Hunt is amazing. Keep doing what you do and your shield high, brother. Also, journos are actors who are too ugly to make it in Hollywood. That's gold, Buck. Solid gold. It's also true, Darby. Solid true. Uh, So I'm so glad, my friend. Always good to hear from you. And thank you for writing in. Colton. Cool name. I like the name Colton. Hey, Buck. Enjoyed your segment on the wildfires in California. I agree that it is from a complete mismanagement of natural resources in an area that is known for annual burn-offs. There are multiple ways to reduce the risks, such as grazing with cattle, but the yuppies don't like seeing cattle in their forests. Sorry if that got a little long, but it's a subject I argue every summer as California burns. Colton, no, I, I think you're right. You know, one of the points from that book, Seeing Like a State, That because what it really does is catalog central planning failures that were when you look at them before you see the effects, it sounds like a good idea. It's not as you know, central planning that involves, hey, everybody, let's take all your plowshares and farm equipment, melt it down into steel for industrialization and move you into collective farms. That's a bad idea, right? Like, that's not going to work out. And you know, it's not going to work out from day one, but Planting trees symmetrically and going with the best tree for the most, uh, the most lumber per tree. And that all sounds very reasonable until you, until you see it in effect and realize it's a disaster. And the reason for that, and many of you, I think, will like this part of seeing like a state, is collectivization and central planning overlook local knowledge. And those of you who are uh, law enforcement or military, current or, or past, know that there's no substitute for local knowledge that it is an advantage uh it is an advantage in a law enforcement environment it's an advantage on the battlefield uh, and there's no substitute for it either and that's true in all aspects of life you know the, the when i mean local knowledge i don't just mean geographic it means the knowledge that comes from doing and being involved in versus knowledge from afar based on theorizing uh, the central planning schemes of the past have always overridden and ignored local knowledge. And so that's why they'd say, oh, local farmers that allow animals to graze in their fields, you know, that that's such a bad idea. Oh, well, maybe the animals fertilize the fields as well. Maybe there's more to it than just maybe the reason they do it is because their ancestors and generations have done it before them successfully. And no one knows what's going to happen if you just change that because. So. That's uh, Colton. I'm with you on all that, Sheldon. Also a cool name. Buck, great show. Love the idea of a rising podcast. I listen to podcasts as I go about my day. I can't be looking down at my screen as I do this. A podcast would make it so much easier to consume your show. Just my two cents. Shields high, Sheldon. Sheldon, look. I mean, this show is a podcast. Everybody listening to this live on radio. If you ever miss it or you want to catch it, you know, later on, if you missed part of it, uh, you can always listen on iTunes. You can listen on Stitcher.com and i hope you do and there's going to be more podcasts coming the shields high podcast is uh coming back folks just in time for the lazy late august weekends jason is next up here nothing ticks me off more than libs trying to use the bible to justify social uh socialist policies a great verse on this is two corinthians nine seven each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Keywords, not under compulsion, meaning it must be personal charity voluntarily given. All government relief programs are anti-biblical. Well, Jason, I'm with you on all that. So there you have it. Uh, Mona writes, communist dentist. Is it safe? Fascist too, I guess. Is that like a haiku? I don't. I, I mean, I, I think I get what she's going at, but that was pretty. That was pretty vague. Uh, Jim writes in. Can you explain how McCarthy? I'm assuming you mean Senator Joe. Yeah, Joe McCarthy was correct. Uh, and also above this, he has a a dog in a shelter that he sent me a photo of. It was very, very cute. Uh, so thank you for that, Jim. Hope hope that dog's been adopted and as to McCarthy and being correct the the biggest answer to that is that when McCarthy went through the whole so-called red scare uh and and there was all that you know the communist witch hunt and all that stuff you've heard about in very superficial history texts they did not have uh the public did not have access to something known as the Venona project or the Venona papers Venona was a top secret military program to uh break into the encrypted cables that were being sent back or sent back and forth to the Soviet Union. And from the Venona program, it is clear that there were high-level penetrations of the United States government, that McCarthy was correct in many cases uh, where he was talking about people being Soviet sympathizers and Soviet agents. And like I said, v- Venona is, is key in that. And, you know, there were some very senior-level uh very senior level penetrations places like the state department and the white house democrats by the way you want to know who sold us out to the soviets all of them were leftists all of them were democrats you don't hear about that that much do you well you hear about it here in the freedom hut which is why you always got to hang out where you know your people you know what's going on which is right here uh like i said tell somebody about the podcast we'll do a freedom hut podcast this week i'm not sure who the guests will be yet but it'll be some fun regardless And uh, I'll be with you, of course, tomorrow, same time, same place, from the swamp, live here
2: in D.C. As always, my friends, Shields High.